So Brian knows. That's right. Uh, if you get to your seat, if you could grab a Bible and open it up to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be uh, in verses 12 through 17 this morning. So 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I'm going to read this and then I'm going to pray. So 1 John chapter 2, towards the very back of your Bible. Chapter 2, verse 12. It says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Oh God, this morning uh, we come to you in your word and we, we ask you, God, uh, just to graciously speak to us this morning. God, we've, we've seen in your word and we've experienced with our own lives that when you speak, you act and things happen, and things change. And so God, we ask you to speak to us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us understanding of these things that you're wanting us to understand, and that ultimately, God, um, you would do whatever it takes in our lives to make us more like your son, Jesus. Uh, may he be um, who our eyes are fixed upon this morning. May he be the one that our, our hearts pant for and long for. And God, may we be a church um, that is known by our love for him and our desire to see him made known in this place. We love you, Lord, and uh, we know that we can only say that because you've loved us first. We're grateful for your love, your pursuing love in our lives. So teach us now, in Christ's name I pray, amen. All right. Well, assuming that John is the author of this letter which that's an assumption because it actually doesn't say that. But universally, people believe John's the author of this letter. Um, we find something here that you will not find in any other of John's writings. The author here leaves this straightforward speech and moves into poetic language. You get a poem here. Um, this is great. Some of you are, like, excited, okay? Uh, you might have noticed that as you get to verse 12, your text type in your Bible changes it's as if all of a sudden John, who's been really direct during the first part of his letter to his audience, almost like kneels down and kind of gets close to our face, and uh, he's here to get intimate with us, with his readers. He's here to affirm them. 
Uh, he's here to remind those that he loves what is true of them. This is what poetry does, doesn't it? If you've ever written about anybody a poem, you don't write them a poem and, and telling them all the things they need to work on in their lives. You know, you don't ask them to do something for you. You write poems to, like, speak over people what you love about them, what is true of them, of, of the beauty that you see as a reality in their life. Why does he do this? Why does John do this? Well, it's because this kind of affirmation that we get here, it actually leads us towards a certain kind of love. The affirmation that we get here leads us to love. I'm going to put it to you like this, okay? Affirmation, how it does this. It's really important. Over the years, um, I've gone overseas on many uh, short-term mission trips. And as I've gone out on those trips, the hardest part of going is always having to say goodbye to my wife and my kids. It's always the worst part, okay? Knowing that I'm not going to see them for a couple of weeks. Now, when I go on a trip like this, I don't say to my kids, I don't get down in their face, get up close and say, come here. I don't say, daddy's going to be back soon, or maybe he won't. Uh, You know, maybe he's not really your daddy after all. Uh, maybe my real family lives somewhere else, and I'm going to go and see them. You don't know. You'll have to wait and see. You know, if I come back, I might return from this trip and give you a gift, or I might not come back at all, right? I just want you to sit around, and I want you to think about that while I'm gone, okay? And let that compel you, you know, to love me all the more, to be better kids, you know? See ya. Now, let me ask you, if I said that to my kids before I left, is that kind of lack of affirmation going to produce a love in them for me? Are they going to go, man, I love that guy, you know? What a good dad, you know? Isn't he amazing? We're so lucky to have a dad like him, okay? No, this, this lack of affirmation, it's not going to produce love in my kids. It'll produce fear, insecurity. It's not going to lead to any kind of love, will it? See, affirmation of this kind of truth that John is affirming in believers, it leads to something. And that's what we see this morning. And it's, it's really important. So we, this is what we see here. If you're the note-taking kind or you just want to have a little bit of a grid. We see the affirmation that leads to rightly ordered love. We see the affirmation in verses 12 through 14. And then we see this love, this rightly ordered love in verses 15 through 17. So let's, let's look at this affirmation again. Starting in verse 12, he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you've overcome the evil one. Notice that there is no imperatives here. There's only indicatives, right? There's absolutely no commands. You're not supposed to do anything in this poem, which is a normal thing for poetry, right? There's only truth statements. These are things that are true of believers, okay? And notice the ongoing force of this repetition. I am writing to you. 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 He says it six times, right? He is pleading with them here. He's telling them, this is who you are. Notice the cycles. Children, fathers, young men. Children, fathers, 
young men. John does not, just to be clear here, John is not excluding women from consideration here. But what he's doing is he's employing the language categories of his day, which used masculine forms for mixed groups. I still do this today. So if I say, hey, good morning, guys, I'm not just talking to the dudes in the room, okay? I'm saying, hello, everybody. That's what I'm saying. And so that's kind of what we see here. Also, important thing to note here, don't, look, don't read too much into this, because these are not references here to spiritual maturity. They're just references to age. And these references to age are not here to say, hey, these things are only true of you if you fit into this age category. And so when it says fathers, you're not like, well, I'm not that old, so I'm going to check out. That's not what this is for. This is just a poetic way for John to affirm the multi-generational body of believers. Okay? So with that understanding, what does he affirm about them? Well, he says children, which is a reference to all Christians because throughout the letter, John refers to his readers as children, and here he affirms that what is true of these children is what? That their sins are forgiven, okay? We also see here that our sins are forgiven not for our own sake, but for his sake. You might have a translation in front of you that says, on account of his name. His is a reference to Jesus, and we saw this back in chapters 1 and chapters 2, that God forgives us of our sins, not just because he's nice, not just because he's gracious. It's not even because he loves you. It's because Jesus was put forward as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. And so now when it says we are forgiven on account of his name, for his name's sake, I'm forgiven because of what Jesus did. I'm forgiven because of him. That's why I'm forgiven. It's not because of me. It's because of him. And that's what this means here. This is true. Okay? Fathers, we are told that these people know him who's from the beginning. Well, who's from the beginning? Well, we learned this at the beginning of chapter one, that John refers to this person who's from the beginning, who's the word of life. And we know that's not just a sentence or a phrase or a message, but a person, because he says the word of life is someone that he's seen and heard and touched. He's referring to Jesus, the incarnate Jesus, the son of God who existed for all eternity, became flesh. He's like, you know him, you know Jesus in the flesh. And then he says, young men, and these people are said to overcome the evil one, which is a reference there, the evil one, it's a reference to who? The father of lies, right? The accuser, Satan, right? We see this throughout the scriptures. Well, why have they overcome the evil one? It's because they are said that they are strong. Why are they strong? What does it say? The word of God abides in them. That's the only indication we have to suggest that they're strong or that's why they're strong. So by continuing to allow the word of God to remain and live in them, the young men are strong and therefore have overcome the evil one. Now, it's interesting that all of these affirmations and all these tenses in which John writes here, they're on the ongoing completed sense of the words. He's writing then as if the end has already come, right? as if they've already overcome the evil one, even though we still have more life to live. He does not seem to believe here that he's writing to a group of people that have left the faith or that he's writing to a group of people who are on the verge of leaving the faith. Who's he writing to then? Well, he's writing to a group of people that feel left behind because others have gone out from them And have begun to hold on to false truth about what life with God really looks like. 
We're going to see that next week in verse 19. It talks about these people that went out from us, but they were not of us. So here, you guys, we have an entire readership of 1 John that's probably in their middle years. They've come to faith in Jesus at some point in the past, and they've been around long enough, even though Christianity is still just beginning, they've been around long enough to see competing views about who God is and who Jesus is and what he's done and what that means for their life. They've seen competing views come into play here. So they've seen people leaving their church for other ideas about Jesus, and they're wondering, do I stay with the word that I've heard from the apostles and the eyewitnesses? Or these people that are leaving and saying, oh, no, now I know who God is. And they're leaving the faith. They're wondering, do I stay? So here John is affirming them. He's building them up. And it was, it was time, wasn't it? You know? I mean, the first part of the letter, it's awesome. It's great. Be a little convicting, No. See, the language before this has been pretty straightforward, sharp at times, direct, but here we get a quick break, we get some tenderness, don't we? And, and, and we know this, even if, you, if you're a parent or if you've been parented, maybe, um, there comes a time in parenting where you have to be direct, right? You might look at your kids and say, you know what, that's not right, that, that's not how we treat people, like this is what's right. You know, we, we direct people, you know, we confront but then there's those times where your child's, their, their, their face drops, you know? They feel the conviction. They might feel the shame. And then you, what do you do? You say, come here. Look at me. And you, you might get down on a knee and you might look at them in the face and you say, hey, I love you. I know. I know that you desire to live well. I know that. And I just want you to know that I know. I want you to know that I know. This idea of coming along and kind of embracing them for a moment and doing that, building them up. This is what John's doing. This is what he wants. He wants them to know what is true. And so this part of the letter, you guys, it actually reshapes what we might have misunderstood what John is trying to accomplish here. This is designed to encourage those who are beginning to doubt, am I good with God? I mean, maybe we got this whole Jesus thing wrong and everyone who's leaving is right. You know, maybe we're not the right ones. I don't know if you ever feel that way. Do you ever feel that way about, about your life? Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever begin to doubt? Question if you actually know God? I mean, maybe there's people who once walked alongside of you in the faith. They've moved on from the faith. They're claiming that they have found real truth, and what they used to believe, what you believe, was like, yeah, I used to believe that when I was in my elementary years, but now I've been enlightened, and now I know, and so I'm moving on. I've discovered the truth, the real truth, and so I'm leaving that, because that was, if you want to be naive, keep believing that, but no, we're moving on. You ever feel that way? Do you ever wonder, do I really know God? Should I stay? Or maybe you're simply discouraged and you're hearing voices that are tearing you down or you're listening to yourself. And what you're hearing is not really what you're meant to be hearing. You see, we need voices that are affirming truth in our lives. We need to be told, if you're anything like me, we need to be told time and time again, reminded over and over again who we really are. If we don't hear those voices of affirming truth, we'll actually begin to believe the lies about ourselves and about God. 
I put it to you this way. If you ask my little girl, Isla, how old she is, she'll tell you two, right? And she'll probably go two or something like this, you know? And uh, we're still working on the fingers thing, but she'll say two. And uh, she would be right. She's two, okay? She knows that because we told her that she's two, okay? She hasn't done any background research on her life and, you know, ancestrysomething.com, you know, and figured this thing out. Like, I said, Isla, you are two. And now, if you ask her how old she is, she'll say two. She'll give you the answer two to a lot of other things as well, okay? But if I told her that she was 42, and you ask her, how old are you? Isla's going to say 42, okay? That's a big word. I don't know if she can do that. But she would she'd try to say 42, right? She has needed someone to come along and to tell her what is true about her. And if I have ceased to do that, if I've never done that for her, if I stop doing that for her, at the age that she is at especially, and other people come into her life and they're like, Isla, you're eight, you're 24, you're 33, whatever it is, she either is going to get really confused or she's not going to believe that she's two anymore because that affirming truth isn't entering into her life. And I'm not much different than Isla. I bet you're not either. We need people to come alongside of us and to affirm us and to remind us of the things that are true. I feel like, honestly, most of any pastoral counseling that I do is merely listening to people and then saying gently, that's not true. That's a lie. That's not who you are. Your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. No, you, you know the Father. You know him. And so John begins with affirmation of what is true in any genuine believer who's in Christ. And this leads to the next section of his entire letter, really, which leads him to talk about who and what we love. He's saying, if this is true of you, wouldn't this lead you to love the one who made this true of you? If this is true of you, wouldn't this lead you to love the one who made this true of you? He still has his concerns, though, and so he writes in verse 15. What does he say? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions, it's not from the Father. It's from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John's saying, okay, so now that you're reminded of who you are, now that you've been affirmed that you know the Father, don't love the world. I mean, if you've been around here for very long, and all of you have been around longer than I have, that's for sure, um, you might be confused and go, isn't GBC all about loving the world, you know? And how about verses like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? I mean, you even said, isn't the author of John the same guy who maybe wrote 1 John as the gospel of John? So is John kind of schizophrenic? He's like, I love the world. I hate the world, you know? And you're like, whoa, John's having a bad day when he writes 1 John. You know, what's going on here? This is a really important question. What does John or what does the author mean by the world? It's a really important question. The way you answer that question will lead you a lot of different ways. Well, he doesn't mean don't love people, okay? doesn't mean don't love people. He doesn't mean don't love good things that God has made. 
rightly. When John says, do not love the world, he means do not love the system that stands against God. Do not, do not love the system which stands against God. Well, just in case that sounds too, like, cold and metallic or something. I don't know. Something like that, right? Just in case it's unclear, he defines this in the next verse. Verse 16, what does he say? Well, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions, right? It's the desires of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride and possessions. So what are these things? Well, we know this. The desires of the flesh are what? It's what I feel like doing. This is what I feel like doing, so I'm just going to do it, okay? Because I feel like it. Or it's the desires of the eyes. Well, it's what I want, you know? I want it, so I'm going to have it. Or it's pride and possessions. It's, it's what I've got. I love what I've got, you know? This word desire, it's really the same word often for lust. You know, it's a really important word, and it means a desire that has taken on too much weight. It's a craving that has taken on such weight in your life that it controls you, controls you. It owns you. You don't own it. So the desires of the flesh, that's when some good thing that God has created becomes so important to you, you either feel like you couldn't be happy without it, or it takes on such an important role in your life that you're willing to disobey God in order to have it. Or the desires of the eyes, that's when you see something good in the world that becomes so important to you that you feel like you can't be happy without that thing. So like money, just for an example, you're jealous of people who have it. If they have more than you do, um, you get jealous about that. Or you make unwise decisions in order to obtain those kinds of things. Or the pride in possessions, that's when your wealth or your accomplishments in life become something that you take pride in, that you boast about. And that can happen in a few ways. So maybe your accomplishments make you think that you're better than other people. You think, look at what I've gotten or what I've done or this sets me apart. You want others to notice you because of something. Or the other way you can boast is to assume that these things make your life so stable that you don't have anything to worry about. You go, well, I'll be fine. You know, I have money in the bank account. I'm going to be all right. You know, or I'll be fine. People like me. Or I'll be fine. I'm so talented. I'll just like figure this way out because I can do it. You know, I can, I can, I can manufacture something here. So this is the world system when God isn't God of me. That's what we're talking about. But actually positions myself as God over me. That's what this is. It's saying, you know what, God? You're not God. I'm God. And uh, everything that I see or that I want or that I have, it's here to serve me. It's here to make me feel the way I want to feel, make me the person I want to be. And John says, guys, in light of who you are, don't love the world. This is what we're told not to love. So let me ask you a very, very important question. Why should we not love the world? Or better yet, what does our text say is the reason why we shouldn't love the world? Is it because it's bad? Is it because it's just wrong and you want to be a good person, you know? Is it because God says no to that? Well, it's not any of those answers are wrong per se. They're just really shallow because there's a lot more depth to the answer of why. It's deeper. It's because we're actually exchanging something. If we love the word world, the world, excuse me, you're you're exchanging something for that. You're turning something in so you can have it. And we see it clearly through these interconnected stanzas of this verse. So 
I, I try to do this well for you, but I could not draw arrow. I could not figure out how to draw arrows from one line to the next. I'm sorry, okay? But um, I thought this might be helpful. But we see in verse 15, the love of the world, verse 16, comes from the world, verse 17, and just so you know, the world's passing away. But there's this love of the Father. Where does that come from? It comes from the Father, and he remains forever. He's these like two threads running right by each other. The world is passing away. That's, that's present tense. Do you see, this isn't a call to merely not love something. This is an invitation to love something else. We are being warned of loving the world and called into a life of loving God our Father. Why? Because we are told if you love the world, number one, why should you not love the world? Because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Verse 15, right? The love of the Father is not in you. Why is the love of the Father not in you? Verse 16 tells you, because what you love is not from the Father. That which you love, the world is actually against God. It stands opposed to Him. This is really striking because we are being told here that loving the world crowds out the love of the Father in us. The two don't actually coexist together. Okay? They, they don't mix. If I love the world which stands against God, is not for God, but is against God, then I can't possibly love God. Okay? This is kind of like a, making a spicy Dijon mustard and jelly sandwich. Okay? The two things, they don't go together. Okay? That's not going to taste good. Okay? That was the best I could come up with. I was trying hard to think of what's gross. And I was, I'm afraid someone in here is like, that sounds good. Okay? So <laughs> if that's you, uh, just know those don't go together. Okay? That's an objective reality, no matter what you think. Okay? But let's be honest. Okay? We think by the comfort, by the comfort with which we so often live our lives, we trick ourselves into believing that we can love the world and love the Father at the same time. We're like, that's not mustard and jelly, that's PB&J. They're different, but they actually kind of go well together. We get this, we get this, okay? Try to illustrate it further. I'm a, I'm a Niners fan, okay? I love the 49ers. I have loved them since I was five years old. Do you realize what that means for me? It means, obviously, that I do not love the Seahawks, okay? That's what this means. I can't. Could you imagine if I was like, I love the 49ers. I love them so much. I'm a diehard fan. And uh, you replied, oh, man, you're going to get teased a lot at GBC because there's a ton of Seahawks fans here in the church. And I said to you, oh, no, that's great. I love the Seahawks. They're my favorite team, too. You know, I'm a huge Seahawks fan. What are you going to say to me? You're going to go, I don't think the love of the 49ers is in you, right? <laughs> that doesn't make sense to us, does it? They don't coexist. If I try to make them coexist, we all know the truth, don't we? Don't we? That's mustard and jelly. That's not PB&J. I could put it to you more soberingly. Uh, my grandmother has cancer, and I love my grandmother. Cancer is opposed to her. It is against her. Okay? It's her enemy. Can you imagine if I said, I love my grandma, but I loved cancer? That's dumb, isn't it? Right? 
all of us universally, you don't have to be a sports fan, you could think mustard and jelly's great. We all know those don't mix, don't we? Why? Because cancer stands against anybody that we love. Doesn't it? They don't, they don't exist with each other. That would reveal that the love of my grandmother is not in me. So if the system of the world is opposed to God and it stands against him, and you love the very thing that is against the one you say you love, you actually don't love the one that you say you love. Those loves don't coexist together. Do you see? John has affirmed them that they know the Father and then says, so don't love the world. Don't be tempted by it. This is why, but also if that's not reason enough, he gives you a second reason in verse 17, why you should not love the world. It's not just because the love of the Father is not in you. It's because the world's passing away along with its desires, verse 17. So in simple terms, John is saying loving the world is a bad investment. It's a really bad investment. We live as if the world is so permanent, don't we? It has this permanence to us, but it's nothing but a reality that we're told is currently in the midst of passing away. Why do we think that the world is so permanent? I mean, I was thinking this week, I mean, it's kind of like being in high school and middle school in a way. A lot of you are in that now. And uh, a lot, all of the rest of us have traveled through those years. But when you're in middle school and high school, I remember the pressures are enormous, aren't they? The pressures are enormous. It's as if those are the only years that matter, and you can't see it at the time. And so the people that you want to be friends with, or the people you want to be like, or the person you want to date, or the things that you, you, you give in to do, to have something you feel like you need that feels so permanent, it just, man, it almost ruined me. It did. It led me to love the world, to do whatever I felt like doing, or whatever I wanted, is what I went for, and I built my identity on what I got. That's flesh, eyes, possessions. But then as anyone who passes through those years and enters into the next season, we look back and we realize, man, that was so short. That was so temporary. It didn't really matter as much as I thought it did. And then you go to reunion, or you Facebook stalk people, and you're like, oh, that's what they're doing? You know? You see that they live a pretty normal life. You all got through it. But let's be real. It's not only high school. It's not only middle school. Then there's college. and there's your 20s. Then there's the years where you might have family or you become empty nesters. You retire. Whatever season it is, young men, fathers, children kind of stuff, you feel the pressure. You feel the pull. You feel like, now this is permanent. What I'm facing now, that's permanent. And John says, guys, when you stand on that eternal horizon, you'll know. But look here, into the face of your loving father. He says, no, the world, it's passing away. It's a bad investment. I'll never forget attending a Promise Keepers event when I was in middle school. I don't know if anybody even knows what that is. It's in Denver, Colorado. I don't remember anything. I remember one guy said one thing. He says, you'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And I was like, I don't remember that. It made a lot of sense to me as a middle schooler. See, the question here isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. It's not whether you will. The question is what you will love as ultimate. St. Augustine talked a lot about this. Um, 1 John really 
is something he thought about a lot. And he says that love is like gravity. He said our love is like gravity. He said, said this, a body by its weight tends to move towards its proper place. The weight's movement is not necessarily downwards, but to its appropriate position. Fire tends to move upwards, a stone downwards. They are acted on by their respective weights. They seek their own place. So oil poured under water is drawn up to the surface on top of the water. Water poured on top of oil sinks below the oil. They are acted on by their respective densities. They seek their own place. Things which are not in their intended position are restless. Once they're in their ordered position, they are at rest. See, we get this idea, okay? You ever gone swimming with a beach ball? You try to hold the beach ball under the water? You can do it for a while. It's kind of fun. You float a little bit. What happens? The beach ball always comes to the surface, doesn't it? No beach ball on its own volition has just been like, I'm going to sink, right? Because its resting place is on top of the water, isn't it? Right? Whereas my resting position, if I try to float on the water, is downwards, right? It's, I'm going to sink. I'm not a beach ball. We have different places where we find our rest. And so you might be thinking, Josh, this sciencey lab kind of talk is mildly interesting, but what does this have to do with my love? Augustine finishes by saying this, my weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. And this is what John is saying. If I don't want to love the world, but I really don't love the Father, that's just beach ball underwater kind of stuff. It could fight hard. It's going to find its resting place back in the world. See, this has always been our story, hasn't it? Right? It takes me back to the beginning of our Bibles even. In that place, we find Adam and Eve, right? the very first people who are appropriately loving the good world that God has made. Yet the tempter comes in in the form of a serpent, and what does he do? Notice this. It's really, really interesting. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the both of their eyes were opened, and they knew, they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. See, this is just a desire of the flesh stuff, right? It's good for food. Desire of the eyes, delight to the eyes. It's pride and possessions, right? This will make me wise. And what did this lead to? Not only shame... But it wasn't peanut butter and jelly, was it? It didn't cause them to love God. It caused them to try to get away from Him. And this has been our story ever since, hasn't it? Since that day, we've lacked any assurance. Verses 12 through 14 can't be said to be true of us. My sins aren't forgiven. Instead, I try and cover my shame and guilt with my sin with fig leaves. It can't be said of me that, that I know God. Because I don't want anything to do with God. I want to hide from Him. I don't want to be found. I haven't overcome the evil one. I'm actually tempted by the evil one. And I've seen the things that He offers me in this world, and they're very appealing to me. So I don't overcome because I don't want to overcome. I love the world. I'm not strong. I'm weak. But you know what? This reminds me of another story. It's a story we find later in places like Matthew 4 and Luke 4. We see another man, don't we? We see a second Adam. 
And we see the same tempter who comes to him, and the tempter says to this second Adam, Jesus, after he hasn't eaten for 40 days, probably hungry, right? How about you turn these stones to bread? If you're the son of God, you can do that. And what does Jesus say? What comes out of his mouth? What makes him strong? Well, it's the word of God that abides in him, which in his physical weakness and hunger makes him strong. And he says, I don't live by bread. I live by every word that comes from the mouth of my father. The tempter says, if you are the son, throw yourself down. The angels will save you. Again, the word that abides in Jesus comes out and he refuses. And then the tempter says, I'll give you all that your eye can see if you worship me. And Jesus says, get real, be gone. My heart belongs in worship to the Father. He knows that this stuff isn't neutral. Right? He, he knows. And he's tempted with what? The desire of his flesh, right? The bread. He's uh, desire of the eyes. Look at all this. I'll give it to you if you worship me. The pride and possessions, right? Throw yourselves down. You got some angels, right? They'll save you. You can take some pride in your angels. They'll do something for you. Jesus says, you guys... Jesus, you guys, he didn't just die in your place. He lived in your place. He lived in your place. He's the one. He's the only one who truly overcame the evil one. He is strong. Why? Because the word was in him and the love of his father was in him. He did the will of the father and he went to the cross when he was the only one who should have never gone there. And he didn't hide from his father ever in his earthly life like Adam and Eve and you and I do. But when he was on the cross because of your sin, because of the desires of the world kind of stuff, the father turned his back on Jesus. Why? Well, it's through through that faith in Jesus, the one who lived in your place, verses 12 through 14 could be spoken over you, assuring you that your sins, your love of this world is forgiven for Jesus' namesake. You know Jesus. You know the father. The word now isn't a repellent to you. It is something that you desire to have abide in you and it makes you strong and you overcome the evil one because you see now, you see. Do you see? Assurance leads to rightly ordered love. Our love, it actually finds its resting place in the Father. That's where the beach ball goes. So what are you going to do? You gonna walk out of here today going, I'm not gonna love the world. I'm not doing that no more. I'm not giving in. It's bad. Right? It's passing it's a bad investment. So I'm not gonna do it. I wanna be smart. Is that what you're gonna do? It's just holding the beach ball under the water still, isn't it? What you need to do is you gotta replace that love with another love. You don't create a vacuum. You'll keep filling it with the same stuff. We redirect our our eyes. We love the one who makes 12 through 14 true. How do you do that? Well, there's the important parallel mechanism here. Verse 14, what? You're strong. You overcome the evil one, right? You don't give in to the tempter. How? Why? Because the word abides in you. Right? Verse 17, Whoever does the will of God abides forever. How do I know the will of God? The word abides in me, right? This thing happens to me, right? This this word makes me strong. But it more than just makes me strong. It 
It doesn't just make you strong through knowledge. It makes you strong because it's turning your eyes towards someone, right? It's reminding you who you are. It's reminding you who your God is. It's reminding you what he's done, right? This is done through studying, but not studying in the way that you think you study. Because isn't you going home and, and coming up with some new information out of this book? This isn't like studying for a test. You study in the same way that a deployed soldier studies the photograph of his wife. You study in the way that you would study a sunset. You stare at it. You stare at the beauty. It'll do something to you. It'll shift your weight. It'll make you lighter or heavier or whatever, whatever needs to happen. That's what we do. And as you stare at him, as you see the vast and endless beauty of Jesus in the gospel, as you find these words of 12 through 14 spoken over you daily, as the word abides in you, you will long to be on that eternal horizon with God forever. So it's my prayer that we would be people who affirm the truth of the gospel over each other, that our loves may be rightly ordered and soar heavenward, not sink into the world that's passing away. Let's all stand together and pray. Let's do that. Father, we we come to you and we ask that you'd forgive us for how we think that we can love the world and love you. Now those things kind of can just coexist. Lord, I do pray that through the power of your Spirit, Lord, I know I feel so helpless even in my own life, to make any of this really stick in a transformative way, that's your job, God. And I just pray, I beg you to just exalt yourself and for our eyes that we might see clearly that our love for you would just soar and we would see just how incomparable just our little petty loves are. Lord Jesus, would you transform our hearts in such a way that we would behold you, we would love you, that we would not love this world, Lord. We'd know who we are because of what you've done. May our response time of singing and communion just be a means of grace in our lives, God, for that to, to sink a little bit deeper take root and to grow into something beautiful this week. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So guys, we come to the communion table now. As a church, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come to these tables that have communion. And uh, it's a weekly remembrance that Jesus perfectly loved the Father in my place.
I know I come to the table with conviction and disordered loves, and I come to the table remembering the one who never gave in. And through his cross and empty tomb, this, this curse of disordered love is broken. And so as we take this meal today, I pray that you would celebrate that you now know that the world is passing away along with its desires. But because of this meal, we will abide with God forever. So I pray this meal would just be a little taste that points our eyes towards that horizon this morning. So take time and respond now.